Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It was the ultimate double down. Tennis had seen carnival barkers and self-promoting parents before. So when Richard Williams declared that his daughter was a future tennis champion who didn't need junior tournaments, who didn't need to sacrifice herself to the academies that had come into vogue, the tennis ecosystem was really more amused than anything else. Sure, Venus Williams looked different and had a backstory uncommon to tennis, but few people believed her father's claims that at age 14 she was already a world-class player. And then Venus proved it. At her much-anticipated WTA debut in Oakland in 1994, Venus beat Sean Stafford, a quality player who was once an NCAA singles champion. Venus then took a set off of a Rancho Sanchez Vicario, then the number two player in the world who, weeks earlier, had beaten the mighty Steffi Groff to win the U.S. Open. And damn if Richard Williams wasn't vindicated. His daughter with the astral name and the beads in her hair, she really was as good as advertised. And then, then Richard shoved all his chips in the middle of the table. You haven't seen anything yet, he told, or warned, anyone who would listen. See, Richard had a younger daughter who was at home, and she might be even better. She was about 15 months younger than Venus. Serena was her name. Her game was a work in progress. She couldn't quite beat Venus regularly in practice, but she was inching closer. And while she wasn't as tall and might never have Venus's physique, she was powerfully built. And besides, and this is critical, she had an additional gift. As Richard told the world, Serena was meaner. Before the world would know what had hit it, Richard said, Venus and Serena would be playing each other in the finals of the world's biggest tournaments, batting titles back and forth as if they were tennis balls. To Richard, this wasn't bragging. It wasn't even really predicting. He was just expressing a future reality. The collective response of the tennis world was something along the lines of, man, this guy is pressing his luck. Venus was undeniably a bright prospect, maybe even a future champ. But now this guy is saying his younger daughter is a champion too? It would have been like Mrs. Mozart saying, you think young Wolfgang Amadeus is good, you should hear my other son back home on the piano. Or, yes, Leonardo paints well, but his sister, now there's a talent at the easel. But within a few years, it was clear. Say what you will about Richard Williams, a complex figure who to this day inspires a range of reaction and emotion and description. He sure nailed it. Tall and graceful, Venus would be making inroads in tennis. By 1997, she reached the finals of the US Open, playing with confidence and power and projecting dignity in the face of what 
might charitably be called hazing. But then there was Serena too, climbing the charts, winning her share of matches, and yeah, she was meaner. It all crystallized at the 1999 event in Miami, the Lipton it was then called, and it was considered tennis's fifth major tournament. Placed on opposite sides of the draw, Venus and Serena blazed through their matches. Richard, who was based about 90 minutes up I-95, held court, confirming that even in tennis that does wacky like no other sport, this was an extraordinary story. By the time Venus and Serena met in the finals of that Miami event, a worldwide audience had descended. Never mind that they had hijacked tennis. These two sisters, who looked like, dressed like, played like, acted like no one else, they were the sports story of the week, drawing attention away from the NCAA tournament, from baseball's opening day, from Tiger Woods attempting to win another Masters. It was one of those rare occasions when, in real time, the world knew it was witnessing history. This wasn't a flash event or a one-off or an outlier. This was a new norm for tennis. The Williams sisters had arrived, fiercely, boldly, and without apology. SI producer Jamie Lasanti has the story of the Williams-Williams final at the 1999 Miami event. The Williams sisters first met in a WTA tour match at the 1998 Australian Open, where Venus beat her sister in the second round. They met again later that year in the quarterfinals of the Italian Open in Rome, and again, Venus came out on top. But their clash in Miami was different. Even though Venus and Serena were pitted on opposite sides of the draw, an all-Williams affair in the final was unexpected and unprecedented. It wasn't until after the tournament began that Sports Illustrated decided to send a writer to Miami to report on the Williams sisters. That writer was John Wertheim. Yes, the same person who also happens to be the host of this show. How did you first get the assignment to go cover the Lipton Championships in Miami? This was a different era in tennis and also a different era in media when you could do things like this. Serena Williams had just won a big tournament in Indian Wells, California. She beat Steffi Graf. It was a big story. And after a few days of this Lipton event in Miami, one of the editors said, you know what? These Williams sisters are both still in the tournament. They could meet in the finals. They're on opposite sides of the draw. And you'd said, well, yeah, but there's there's 16 other players left. And they sort of said, well, too bad. Go, go to Florida, babysit the tennis. And if the Williams sisters play in the final, you got a story. And if not, well, come home and you've had a couple of days of uh, watching tennis in Southern Florida on our dime. So I sort of shrugged my shoulders, went down to Miami, booked myself into the Marriott with an indeterminate checkout date, basically that depended on the Williams sisters losing. And, and lo and behold, I was there the whole week. And where were you in your career at this time? Were you covering tennis for a while? Did you have a relationship with Venus and Serena then? Or was that one of the first times you covered them? Yeah, I was a really young reporter. 1999, I'd been at Sports Illustrated for, you know, I guess two years, but it was still at the point where he could sort of scratch and clawed for writing opportunities. And hey, uh, you know, here this could be a big story and it could be nothing, but I really wasn't in a position to do anything but go. I had covered a little bit of tennis, but but not really all that much. I mean, remember, too, in, in 1999, tennis was sort of in a weird place where the women's game was still essentially the, the Steffi Graf show. And you had Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi on the men's side, but they sort of drifted in and out. Tennis was a, a much different sport then than it is today. And it, it occurred to me this was really 
my first interaction with the Williams sisters. I, I guess I obviously knew about them. Maybe I'd seen them. They came to New York for a promo or maybe they had a, uh, you know, a, a Reebok shoot. I, I guess maybe I'd met them, but this was really my first encounter with the whole Williams family aura, this tournament in, uh, in 1999. And so when you got there, what was it like in Miami? Did Williams mania already begin by the time you landed? Williams mania was, was revving up. And again, I mean, I think people still in 1999 weren't quite sure what to make of this family. And they had a lot of hype and they had a lot of very sort of promising results. But remember, they hadn't won a major, neither of them. And neither of them had just won the Australian Open, which was a few weeks before. And Venus had gotten to the finals of the U.S. Open in 1997. But, you know, she lost to Martina Hingis and didn't make another final and all of a sudden, 1999 comes, and again, Serena has won this tournament, and Indian Wells has set this up, and they're really, it just, it was an amazing story. And you know you have this in other sports, or there's maybe a hot team in the NCAA tournament, or the goalie gets hot in hockey. It just felt, I mean, it sounds so trite, it just felt like destiny. And again, I think I was dispatched to Miami when there were still 16 players in the draw, but after the quarterfinals, it just seemed faded. I mean, it just seemed like one of these things where, the script had already been written. The hype was already be building. Everybody was looking ahead on the draw. There were still a lot of good players still left in the draw. I mean, I think it was Venus had to beat Steffi Graf to get to the final. But it just seemed like one of these sporting events where you just sort of saw how the plot was breaking. And um, again, I, I brought a few clothes and figured I was going to watch tennis until one of the Williams sisters lost. And I kept going to the matches and going to the matches. And suddenly I've got, uh, I've got five nights of Marriott points and I've got a story. And you also had a lot of Richard Williams coverage in addition to Venus and Serena. What impact did he have on this moment during the tournament and then leading up to the final, of course? You know, this tournament, Jamie, was really in a lot of ways the breakthrough for the Williams family. That uh, Venus and Serena were going to play in the finals of this big event. This was the fifth major. They had beaten all sorts of players to get there. It was in the U.S. It was a tournament where the media could get there very easily. Everything broke right. But this also, in a lot of ways, was the emergence of Richard Williams. And again, I still, 20 plus years later, I don't know whether this was by accident or by design. But he was so wacky and so likable. I mean, there was something very strange about the whole thing, but it also was endearing in its way. And Richard Williams held a press conference, which is something you have not seen too many tennis players do, an official press conference when he sits in the room and takes questions. And there's a, a transcriber making a record of it. And he went in there and they said, you know, what was it like to see your daughters beat Steffi Graf? And he said, you know, to be honest with you, Steffi Graf's my favorite player. Venus is second and Serena's, hard. It's Serena's third. So it was hard to watch. And you want to say, what? You've got these two daughters that are teenagers that are playing in a final. And you've just told me that Steffi Graf, not either of your daughters, is the number one player. And then he went on to talk about his business interests. And he was in the process of you know, buying Rockefeller Center from, quote, the Chinese and the Japanese peoples. And he designs funny books. And he was going to challenge Michael Jackson. And the whole thing was patently bizarre. You had a feeling here was this man who was intensely and immensely proud of his daughters. And he wasn't entirely sure how he was going to project that. But Richard Williams really stole the show, and that had the effect of taking some of the pressure off of Venus and Serena. And he really became sort of a third character to take some of the hype and take some of the publicity. And to this day, I don't know if it was, again, intentional or unintentional, but it had this wonderful effect of sort of lightening the mood 
and making him a character in addition to these two teenage daughters. And I mean, I think it set a precedent in a lot of ways. I think it was really clear that this guy was quite rightfully incredibly pleased and incredibly proud of his daughters. And it really sort of leavened the occasion to have this this wacky dad holding up signs and he'd smoke a cigarette and he was telling stories and he had a big tour bus like you see a rock band. He had this huge tour bus with Venus and Serena that was sort of like uh, sort of airbrushed on the side. I mean, the whole thing was um, in, in the best way, in the best sense of the word, a circus. It was a lot of great tennis. It was a great breakthrough moment. But I think Richard's presence there had the effect of really taking some of the pressure off of his daughters. How common was the father as coach relationship in tennis at the time? We all know about the athlete parent, but was Richard and all of his antics, were they normal in the sport? Yeah, I I think that's a really good point because in 1999, the field was much younger, right? I mean, you had Venus and Serena were teenagers. Martina Hingis was a teenager. Anna Kornikova was a teenager. Jennifer Capriati, I guess, was born in 76, so she was in her early 20s, but you got a very young field. And with that became, with that came parents. And we saw parents like Mary Pierce's father, who was notorious and abusive, and honestly, you know, this was felonious conduct. I mean, this this was terrible stuff. And we saw other parents, you know, Stefano Capriati, who is, you know, for, for rightly or wrongly, I think sometimes he is acknowledged as a source of Jennifer Capriati's burnout, who really pressured her to play a lot and take advantage of commercial opportunities. So you had this presence of the tennis parent, and they really came in all sorts of shapes and sizes. I mean, uh, you know, Monica Sellis had a father who was a wonderful man, who was uh, a source of good, but he was present as well. So the players were much younger. You had this image of of the tennis dad. Usually it was this intense, sort of uh, this pressure-filled figure who was not seen as, as particularly benign. Richard Williams in the beginning, I think, was really seen as benign and he was wacky and he said outrageous things. And there's a there's a clip of Richard Williams doing a live interview with Matt Lauer and saying on live TV that he basically hid his wife's birth control pills and impregnated her for the purpose of siring tennis pros. And Matt Lauer has this look on his face like, how could my producer not have warned me this was coming? So Richard Williams, in some ways, everybody knew about the tennis father, the tennis parent of the species, but no one had ever seen a species quite like this. So he was, uh, it was familiar. It was very common to see parents of players because they were so young. It was not common to see a father who act and spoke and came from and conducted himself the way Richard Williams did. Why were people so cynical about how good Venus and Serena could become in tennis? Your article uh, from 1999 was called We Told You So. Why did people doubt them when they said that they would be the best? Both them and Richard said that they were going to be number one and number two and the best players in women's tennis. I think there are a few things going on. I mean, it's, it's hard to, and I don't, you know, I don't, we can't quantify it. We can't really speak to it firsthand. I mean, there was this, always this issue of race that was hovering and and bubbling beneath the surface. I I think it's naive to overlook that. I think, remember, by 1999, by this tournament, neither Venus nor Serena had won a major, and they had gotten big endorsement contracts, and they had been on 60 Minutes, and they talked a big game, and they had made some uh, occasional marches in tournaments. But I think the tennis salon was getting a little bit restless, and it was sort of like, okay, we know about you. I mean, remember, Venus's breakthrough came at the end of 1994. By 1997, she was in the U.S. Open final. So here we were in 1999, and we all knew about the Williams sisters, and they had had some nice wins, but it was sort of like, 
they hadn't proven themselves as, as big tournament players yet. So there was a little bit of restlessness there. And I also think you have to remember that quite apart from race and the backstory, you have to remember what they were sort of representing, which was here are two sisters who did it their way. Here are two sisters who rejected junior tennis. They rejected the American tennis institutions. They did not go to Nick Boletari's Academy or one of these tennis hothouses. They absolutely did this their own way. It was firm. It was unapologetic. And I think there were a lot of people, I don't want to say rooting against them, but, you know, essentially rooting against them, not because they were flagrant racists, because they resented the fact that these two sisters thought they knew better than the establishment. These two sisters were taking conventional wisdom and, and dumping it on its head. And I think there were a lot of people that were sort of ready to say, you know what, this is what happens when you don't commit yourself 100% to tennis. This is what happens when you don't play the juniors. This is what happens when you don't go to one of these academies. And so I think that um, there was definitely some resistance there. And this tournament, again, this this 1999 Miami tournament was really, I think, a huge plot point in the Williams sisters' story. They both got to the finals. It was the fifth major. They beat great players. They both played each other in the final. I think quite apart from the fact that they had really arrived at this tournament, I think there was also a sense of this is what tennis is going to look like for the next 10 years. It wasn't just, oh, wow, this is a great story. You know, this this is Villanova winning the NCAA tournament. I don't think it was that. I think it was more these two sisters are really head and shoulders above the field, and we better get used to them because like it or not, this is going to be the new normal in the sport. And obviously Venus had sort of established herself a little bit more than Serena had at that point in 1999. But was there any indication or were there any signs that Serena was going to be the player she is today at that point in time? It was hard to tell because, I mean, again, keep in mind how young they are at the time. I mean, they're both teenagers and people were sort of getting wrestles with Venus. Well, Venus hadn't turned 20 years old yet. I mean, Richard Williams said it. And when he said it, everybody rolled their eyes. But there was this sense from the very beginning that Serena had this this level, I, I want to be careful choosing my words here, but I would just say a, a level of persistence, a level of, I guess you could say, aggression, a level of drive, a, a willingness to have a confrontation that Venus didn't have. And those, for better or worse, are qualities that serve you well in tennis. So Richard's quote, initially, when no one knew who Serena was, was, you think Venus is good, I got another one at home, and she's just as good, plus she's meaner. By 1999, I think it was apparent that Serena had a certain edge to her. You know, so I, I think I wrote this one right around then that S Serena has corners. Venus was um, sort of sort of smoother, and Serena had these these edges. And I do think that there was a sense. Remember, Serena was the first one to win a major. I mean, we were in Miami in March of 1999. By September of 1999, we had the official breakthrough, which is Serena winning the U.S. Open. Remember, Serena got there first. Serena, the younger sister upended the natural order of things. Serena got to the Grand Slam pay dirt first. I think a lot of that was because of her constitution more than her tennis. You talk about this sibling relationship between Venus and Serena. How did that connection play out on the court and off the court? Because they go on to play in the future over and over again against one another. But what were those matches like and what was it like then at that point? I think very early they reached this sort of conclusion that we can either have a crackling tennis rivalry, but it's going to come at the expense of our relationship as siblings, 
Or we can have a crackling sibling rivalry, but it's going to come at the expense of our tennis. And they chose door number two, which I, th- I think is totally normal and understandable and, and admirable. But the tennis, when they were both on opposite sides of the net, the fans sort of took their cue from the Williams sisters. And you could tell this wasn't the same Serena pumping her fist and getting intense. This wasn't the same Venus. There was an awkwardness there. How could there not be? I mean, it almost would have been pathological if they did treat each other like an ordinary opponent. But, you know, we talk about a sibling rivalry. I never really felt this was a rivalry. The the victory always came with both sisters getting to the final. And then once they got there, and again, this happened again and again and again in major finals on clay, on hard courts. It was a novel event in Miami and people would yell, you know, go Williams and everybody would giggle. With a very short amount of time, that became the norm. I think they never quite got used to playing the other in a competitive match. There were times they would play in the Wimbledon final and they would be sharing the same house and eating at the same breakfast table. It would have been creepy if they had had the same level of intensity for each other that they did for Justine Hennon or Lindsay Davenport or Steffi Graf. But everyone, from the fans to the media to the Williams sisters themselves, really, I think, struggled for a long time with what do we make of these matches? It's great that these two sisters got to the final. It's an amazing story. Now that they're there, man, this feels weird. And that day certainly counts. I mean, it was it was that match was six four in the third set, but it never felt like a particularly tight, competitive, electric match. And that, that would very much set the tempo for the next twenty years. It, it never has felt normal when Williams plays Williams. It's more of a, a celebration of the family. It's a celebration of what they've achieved. It's an acknowledgement of the two of them. But, you know, I, I don't think you find too many people who say, boy, I, I love Venus, but I hate Serena. You don't see those matches where the fans really cheer for one sister at the expense of the other. And again, the whole ambiance is, is very sort of strange and, and fraught. How could it not be? But I think what makes up for that is the fact that it's just this incredible story. Here are these two sisters. They shared a bunk bed. The sport is played globally. I mean, I, I would say name me another pursuit that's done internet. We're not talking about like Wisconsin log rolling here. Like find me another anything, music, art, theater that people pursue all over the world. And the two best practitioners of the last 25 years, not only are from the same family and not only are sisters, but they're 15 months apart and one shared a bunk bed. So it, it's really an extraordinary story, but it does come at the expense of competitive tennis because I, I don't know too many people that leave a Williams-Williams match saying, oh my God, that was a fantastic sporting event. It's a great occasion. It's not necessarily great competition. I was going to ask you about that because in your story, you talk to Patrick McEnroe about playing his brother, John. And of course they have eight years between them. So that relationship and that rivalry, so to speak, is a little bit different. But how do Venus and Serena compare with any other sibling duo in other sports or any other sibling rivalry in other sports? I guess we can play this game and try and try and come up with with analogs. I mean, the, the Klitschko brothers, but they never had to fight each other. I mean, I, I just don't see it. It's a phenomenal story. I think apart from being close in age, I think it's you really have to consider the context where in a lot of times the two of them were grouped together. Nobody confuses John McEnroe for Pat McEnroe, right? I mean, nobody says, which one are you again? John McEnroe and Pat McEnroe might be very different, but they also didn't have to prove themselves. I don't think they would qualify. They they wouldn't say they were trailblazers. They wouldn't say they felt this sort of frisson, this, this current of exclusion. I mean, apart from being 
sisters and being so close in age and, and also being much younger than the McEnroe brothers. Um, I, I think it also bears keeping in mind that especially in the late 90s, Venus and Serena both felt sort of this this sting of exclusion. So they were really kindred spirits beyond the family bonds. So the idea that they would then suddenly line up on opposite sides of the net and fight each other like this was a regular match, I think uh, was a bit of wishful thinking. This is a sport that is played all over the world. And by, you know, by hundreds of millions of people, the notion that the two best players of the top 25, the last 25 years are both from the same clan. It's, it's just, it's one of the most statistically remarkable features of sports you'll ever see. I, I always say this is the most underrated story in sports, even though uh, we, we know it awfully well by now. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about. What do you think it is that makes the Williams story so underrated? Is it tennis? Is it the fact that their matches against one another have been kind of duds over the years? Or what makes it such a, it's such a remarkable story, but what makes it so underrated? You're with me. It's underrated. For sure. We're in agreement? Yes. Yeah. I, you know, I've thought about it a lot and I don't know. I mean, I think some of it is, I, I think you hit on it. I mean, I think some of the, maybe the fact that their matches aren't classics when they play each other. I mean, maybe some of it is the fact that I guess it's, I guess it's tennis, but still, I mean, tennis as a woman's sport is probably, I mean, you can make the case tennis is the most popular woman's sport in the world. And we're not, we're not talking about, uh, you know, paddle tennis here. I think some of it is the fact just that we knew about Venus Williams in the mid-90s. By the late 90s, Serena had won a major. By the early 2000s, they both were ruling tennis. So I think the casual fan might say, ah, oh, you know, ho-hum, it's another Williams-Williams final. I think we've known this story forever. It's been 20 years. I think in some ways people say this, and I, I find it's really circular logic, but people say, oh, they never had any competition. And you sort of want to say, well, if they had competition, they wouldn't. Uh, Serena wouldn't have 23 majors if uh, – if she wasn't beating the field, you, you can't say you're great and you lack a rival. But I, I, I just think people know the story, right? I mean, pe- people have known the Williams sisters for a long time. We're talking about a quarter century now. And I think people haven't appropriately stepped back and said, this is an insane sports story. And apart from all that, and apart from all the winning, they've had a sister that they lost prematurely. You know, both of them have had very serious health issues. Serena took off time because she was a mother. Both of them have seen their rankings drop way out of the top 50. They've won remarkable amounts of Grand Slam titles as dub- as a doubles team. They've won Olympic gold medals. I think history is going to recall this very, very fondly. And I-, I do think one thing that's nice in tennis is that we used to hear, oh, the Williams sisters were polarizing figures and there were all sorts of... Uh, sort of semantics for how to couch it. It all sort of, again, had this tint of race. Well, you know what? I I don't think too many people are polarized now. And when Venus and Serena play each other, it's a huge deal. When Serena was trying to win the U.S. Open and win the Grand Slam, all four majors, you had other players in the field, other players in the top 10 say, boy, I hope Serena does it. Or if, if I can't win this tournament, I hope Serena does it. In tennis, anyway, it's really taken a nice break. And the Williams sisters are not polarizing figures at all. They're very much embraced. And they've embraced the sport in, in return, not least by playing into their late 30s. Um, I think sort of sports fans at large are a little slow on the uptake. I mean, I, I always make the comparison. This is if, you know, if LeBron's brother is the second best NBA player of the last 20 years, if Tiger Woods' brother is the second best golfer, I think 50 years from now, though, this this is a sports story that is going to age extraordinarily well. And 50 years from now, 
you know, we're, we're going to, if we still are using postage stamps, they're going to feature the Williams sisters. If we're going to be watching a uh, 10 hour documentary. So when someone said, we, we all love this Jordan movie, who else would you watch a 10 hour movie about? And uh, the Williams sisters were my number one choice. So I, I do think this story will age well, even if again, I contend right now it's underrated. You told, you told us it was definitely a significant moment then it felt historical. I mean, Fox even moved that match to a primetime slot, moving the men's final so that Williams Williams could take center stage. But now 20 years later, does it feel like it would have been this significant? Why is it important now to pinpoint this match? I think this was the match where a people really heard the whole story People really got a sense of how good these sisters were. We were past hype and they were proving it. And again, this is this is the fifth major. This was a huge event. It was in the United States. It was, was during March Madness and it became the story of the weekend. And again, I think you look back on the Williams sisters and there was a sense at the time, and I remember it, and you know, I, I, I wrote about it, but I don't think I was particularly prescient. I think everybody wrote about it. There was a realization that this story is just starting to take flight and this isn't well what a crazy coincidence these two sisters are playing each other it was oh shit this is how tennis is going to be for the next 10 years what a remarkable story we better get on board now because we have glimpsed the future of this sport again nobody knew the future in 2020 they would still be active players but at that miami event in 1999 we really got a sense of these two sisters are going to own tennis, and this is what the finals of an awful lot of tournaments are going to look like. And you've got this wacky dad, and he's making signs, and you've got this dignified mother, and these dignified sisters, and this backstory, and these handlers. And sure enough, this very much was a preview for tennis for the next 20 years. As we said then, we'll say it again now, they told us, we told you so. They told us so, and uh, for, for 20 years, they kept telling us. Thanks so much, John. Thanks for sharing your your time from 1999. And we look forward to in another 20 years, maybe looking back on this again and looking back on Venus and Serena's careers and seeing how much of an impact they've had on tennis and just sports in general. They might still be playing. <laughs> I'm John Wertheim. This is Sports Illustrated. It's the record. You could subscribe to The Record on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review, and we'll have another deep dive next week. Our episode today was produced by Jamie Lasanti. Alex Hampel is a supervising producer on the project. Our executive producer is Scott Brody, who also edited today's episode. And SI's director of digital projects and product is Ben Eagle. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.